0: Good morning. We, we did finish our section last time again. I'm not, I'm not making any guarantees about this section. There's a lot of good stuff in this, in this section. So we'll get, jump right into it. We're going to do verses 18 through 22. Um, and we haven't started this one, so let's read together these verses, 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All right. So we start off. Um, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Um, he, we've seen this, a phrase very similar to this, in chapter 2. We had um, uh, 2.21, Christ suffered for you. But it, there he goes into um, talking about how Christ's suffering is an example to us who suffer. Not that that's the only thing that Christ's suffering does for sure, but um, that was kind of the context there. Um, and there he says he suffered for you. Here he says he suffered once for sins. When and where did Jesus suffer for sins? This might seem like a on the cross, on the cross right? This is this is not a, not a trick question. Um, uh, but I think maybe it, it's good for us to to point when he, when he says he suffered um, once for sins that this is not a continual thing. It doesn't. When does it end? Maybe first, let's, let's ask, when does it start? When does Jesus' suffering start? Gethsemane. In Gethsemane? <clears throat> so, yeah, I, I heard like, maybe we... Harder to pin down exactly when... Normally, when we talk about Jesus' passion, you know, we read the passion <coughs> history on Good Friday, and um, we usually start, yeah, either, like, in the upper room... Uh, when Jesus leaves the upper room to go to Gethsemane, and that's the beginning of the, the technical part of Jesus. But would we say that Jesus' suffering for us extends earlier in his life? I think that would be safe to say, that Jesus' suffering, his, the suffering rejection, that starts much earlier than that. But then the high point of this, the, the particular... When we talk about he suffered under Pontius Pilate in the Creed, we're talking about his, that particular... Uh, time of His Passion, but when does it end? Hmm? Yeah, I, I think Jesus gives us a big clue on the cross, on the cross when He says, "It is finished." <laughs> I think that's a part of it. Not that that when 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 He says it is finished is not simply it's done. That that word is a very heavy, full meaning word. It kind of you know, it's it's complete. It's brought to. But I think that that's safe to say. Um, when we're going to be seeing uh, Peter mentions the descent, what we call the descent into hell, I think uh, this is going to be a clue that says that when Jesus' descent into hell is not part of his suffering. He has completed that, He has finished that work. Uh, we'll see that when we come up. That's just a, a clue for coming up. Um, the purpose for Jesus' suffering, uh, Peter writes it in this verse. He suffered once for sins. I mean, just that he says it's for sins. Right, whose sins, not his, ours. Um, that's so. Uh, suffered the right, and that, that's explained by the righteous for the unrighteous. Right, he's the righteous one for the unrighteous for sins of the unrighteous. And why, though, the ultimate purpose for this, or not ultimate, but the kind of final purpose that he might bring us to God is to to destroy the block, which is our sins, between us and God, between us and our holy God, uh, that he might, he suffers, that he might bring us to God. And that phrase then, I think is going to be helpful in the rest of this, that the the, the purpose for all of this is is part of this suffering and and, and this, okay? It's the the purpose that he might bring us to God. All right? In the next verse, or not that it's still the same verse, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. We need to sort that out. Um, what does it mean that he is put to death in the flesh? Um, and we want to focus in on what does this mean that it's in the flesh and the Spirit, okay? So the reason for this, it, the word flesh, what does that mean? It's used in a lot of different ways in the, in the New Testament, uh, in the Bible in general, because you have... Flesh, basic meaning is meat, right? Carne. It's, uh, it, and so, does it simply mean the body, the physical body? That's going to be part of this, right? Because it's put it being put to death in the flesh, not some other way. Um, the Bible does also use this term flesh for like um, uh, my flesh... Uh, Paul talks about my flesh, the, 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 the sinful flesh. The Bible will, is that what this is talking about with Jesus? Well, Jesus doesn't have this sinful flesh, right? So that's going to be out. Uh, um, but then when, it's, when this flesh is used kind of in, um, in opposition to spirit, you have flesh and spirit so there's a, a number of options that we could have then? what the spirit is, because you could have spirit meaning just an individual's person, my spirit. We've had that already in this letter. Um, Someone talked to, it's kind of like his, his soul, but he means like his, his entire person. Um, uh, or spirit, we would certainly have the, like the Holy Spirit, which you would have actually uh, in, I just got the NIV over here, the NIV will capitalize spirit here. Which gives away what they think it is. What do they, what do they think this means? Spirit? When it says being made alive by the Spirit, capital S, then they're thinking that's the Holy Spirit. So that could be an option. before um, the work, right? But when, now here, we have flesh and spirit. There's so three options usually, um, what it's talking about. One would be that it's, it's a distinction between body and soul. He's put to death in the body. And, and made alive kind of spiritually. That would, I'm, I'm not, I don't think that's it, but thats that would be just for the words. Or, um, uh, hold on, I wrote, um, either that we could be talking about here um, with Jesus' flesh, this is human nature, and then in spirit, this is the Holy Spirit. And I think that's how the NIV takes it. It's put to death in the body, in his human nature, his body. And, but then by the spirit or in the spirit means that the Holy Spirit is working in, in his rising from the grave. Or um, what we're talking about here is in the flesh is his human nature. And that in the spirit refers to Jesus more to his divine nature. Um, and the exalted nature of the risen Christ, um, that He's raised according to his, his, He dies because He can as a as a human, um, and His resurrection is a work of, it's of the Spirit, but it's it's talking about His His divine nature. That's maybe seems a little bit complicated, um, but it's. I think that third one is the best understanding of it. Um, We we wouldn't like the first one to say it's the body and the soul as if, because we've talked about this somewhere, Um, was Jesus Jesus raised only in his spirit and not in his body? Well then we've got a different thing going on. If Jesus is he's just dies, there are there are people who kind of believe that or think that that Jesus' resurrection is just a spiritual resurrection. He physically dies, but then he's spiritually raised. Well that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So uh, the resurrection, that's why we, you know we confess that we believe in the resurrection of the body. And so we're not just talking about his resurrection being in his like his spirit, like it's he's just kind of floating off somewhere. Alright, so that one though. Um, I, the, the second option with this being the Holy Spirit that's um, that wouldn't be incorrect theologically as far as like the, this Holy Spirit being involved. We, we confess in the Nicene Creed. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, and the giver of life. And so certainly that, you know, and you have like a Ezekiel, the the uh, prophesying to the dry bones, uh, breathe my spirit in them, and my spirit makes alive but i but I think in here, just in in context it 's talking about who who is put to death and who is made alive and this is very important, both of these, both Jesus being put to death and his being made alive who who is that about like who 's the what do we say? Who is this um, phrase modifying? Um, I think it's going back to Christ. It's the whole Christ. It's the God-man. Body and soul together. So we're not distinguishing, we're not separating g- Jesus um, up in here. Both of these happen. Uh, the whole God-man is in his... Uh, in his death and his resurrection. Huh? So, so, he does this. He's put to death, made alive. This is different, um, and it, it does not made alive. Different word than than the typical word for resurrection, um, which is going to be helpful uh, because it's going to now we get into this phrase in which he went. So in which in the spirit. Which is going to help, that's why getting that straight is helpful because it's going to matter how we go in the next verse. Because what are we talking about? In which, in, in this spirit, in this, um, in, in Christ, uh, the glorified state of the risen Christ. It's in this, in the spirit, that he goes somewhere. It says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Um so if we thought that this one was... Com- I don't think it's complicated. It's just a little bit of a puzzle for us. Um, this, is, this is the verse that we kind of... Our main verse for confessing in the Apostles' Creed that he descended into hell. All right, so that's, that's where, where we're going with this. What does this mean? Um, but it's not, not easy uh, entirely to, to get it. Um, I just came across a couple quotes from Luther on this verse. <laughs> Luther, uh, in in his work writing on first Peter, he says, This is a as curious a text and as obscure a passage as you will find anywhere in the New Testament, to point to the point that I'm still not sure what Saint Peter meant. Um and then he also said, This horrible punishment Oh no, this is Yeah, this is on Genesis, but he says, This horrible punishment seems to have induced the Apostle Peter, like someone in a frenzy, to utter words we cannot understand even today. He's like trying to figure out why Peter wrote this. (laughs) Like, why did you have to... Like, we would have been okay not knowing this or something. Um, someone in a frenzy. To utter words we cannot understand even today. This is what he says. Christ was made alive in the spirit in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison. It is surely as an amazing verdict and almost a frenzied utterance that this awful spectacle appears to have wrung from the apostle. Like, why did the spirit induce him to write that? Um, to, to give us this insight into what Jesus is. All right, so what are we talking about? In which... So in the spirit, uh, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. <laughs> Having been made alive in the spirit, uh, he went uh, to the prison. And and so the context in the scriptures, well, there's enough enough passages that refer to um, the, the the place of the damned, hell as a prison, right? Um, but then he's gonna he's gonna explain who these prison spirits are. Because then he's going to go on. and That's what so our question asks: Who are the spirits in prison? First, all right. So so he's going to explain this. Who are the spirits in prison? <coughs> they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Okay. So these would be who are they? Um, they didn't obey in the days of Noah, um, and we can figure out what he means by obey. That wasn't simply they disobeyed a command. Um, I, I just looked up the other uses of this word in first Peter oh yeah, i should have I should have mentioned when we were talking about the flesh and the spirit, I get ahead of myself there 's other passages that that do that they they use these two terms kind of um, next to each other, and that also makes us pay attention when we see uh, the apostle contrasting flesh and spirit, and I think generally he does. Um, you know, talking about Jesus again, descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So kind of, it seems like the same thing. You've got his, his humanity and his, his divinity, but as it's in his exaltation, resurrection. It's, it's his glorified divinity that's showing um, after at his resurrection. So and then the same thing here. In 1 Timothy 3.6, this is like a little uh, early hymn, sort of, a little poem. Um, he says, we confess the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, and then it goes on to other things. It just seems to have that same, that same contrast between his huma- human nature and his humanity uh, made flesh, and then the Spirit being his vindication in his glory exaltation okay so back to obedience so these verses when they these people were disobedient so this is our verse here first peter three right the same word when i just this is when i just searched for obey in english and um and disobey obey and disobey in and they all are the same word in greek um but notice what they're... What, what are they talking about when, they, when he uses these? We, we saw this one already in verse 2. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This is talking about unbelievers, right? Um, and in 3 verse 1, when he was talking to wives, subject to your own husbands, even if some do not obey the word, and we had, we had concluded that was probably... These were probably unbelieving husbands, right? Um... Here's our passage now, and then also uh, in chapter 4, he's going to ask this question. If it's time, if judgment begins with the household of God, and it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey? So he uses this word obey, although I'm, when I look at the Greek, I'm not sure why they translated obey, because that doesn't really, like, it, um, the, the, the word there is like kind of their unconvinced... Um, it's very interesting that it's a different word than all the times in First Peter when he talks about people who obey the word. So he talks about these people who disobey the word. He uses a, like a totally different word. Um, we had seen a number of times, well, three, <laughs> in chapter 1, where he talks about obedience, or obedient children. Um, and these are, this is the one where it says to, to hear. It has to do with hearing. Um, people who... Um, Obedient children, uh, obedience to Jesus Christ, to, to, hear is to, to obey is to hear the word of God and, and believe it. Um, it. Neither one of these terms really, I think, have our English connotation of obey. Like, obey to think someone gave a command and I obey it or I disobey it. But it, it's, a, it's a bigger word than that, and it really has to do with whether they believe what they hear. In the positive case and the, the negative case is kind of like this, this disobedience is this rejection and, and uh, unconvinced I'm, I'm, I'm not yeah. so going back here who then are these people formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah so Noah is preaching and he's preaching to, you know, to the world he has what 120 is it 120 years that he has to work to build the ark Um, long period of time and they refuse so unbelievers in noah's day uh we'll have to ask why why make the why why does he specifically mention these fellows i mean because there's been unbelievers all along including during peter's day jesus day and our day um so these are spirits in prison who formerly did, so they're unbelievers from, from then. And that he went, so they're spirits in prison, so that we have unbelievers in hell. Um, what did Jesus proclaim to them? It says he went and he proclaimed some translations, I think NIV has preached, Well so so that's what we that's that's where we're going to get that 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 is but how do we know that from here we that's we're left with that um, it just says proclaim <clears throat> some people will do this from the word proclaim or to preach because they assume that if he's preaching he's preaching the gospel like he's like what is he preaching to them he's preaching them like a second chance like here now you repent um, the word doesn't have it in it. The word is simply to proclaim. Usually this word um, uh, oftentimes is proclaiming the gospel, but it it, it needs that. Um, uh, or they use a different word. Um, it's the word for like evangelize. That's the word. If he had used that word, then we would be thinking he's doing something different. But he simply goes and proclaims something to the unbelievers in hell. Okay? Um, uh, so... It would also contradict the rest of the scriptures if we were to think that he's going there to give them a second chance. Man is destined to die once and after that to face the judgment. Right. Uh, so that would just go against the rest. of. Us, so that, we're going to rule that out. Also, the word doesn't require us to think that he's, if he's preaching, it doesn't mean that he's preaching salvation here anymore. Is it done more in the context of how, I guess in the, in the physical realm, Back then, when Rome was going to conquer a city, they would, they would march through and say, we're the victors. Yeah. Is that similar to what Christ is doing here? And down in the spirits of God, he's going down and he's like, I'm the victor. Yeah. You know, I am God. Um, that, that, that does seem to be sort of the... You know, and whether that's, um, that, that's a, a, a historical type of thing that that victors would do. And so so, part of um, what would help us in figuring that out, in in making it clear from this verse, is to ask, when does he do this? So it doesn't use a, a time word here, but it does say in which, and if in which he went, that in the spirit. And if that spirit is the spirit, it does talk about him being made alive. And where do we put this in the creed? So, Apostles' Creed, we're in, Um, so your daily creed, uh, Jesus uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose from the dead. So, actually, in that sense, in the creed, it puts it before we confess the resurrection, um, And here, he says, it's it's in in which, in the spirit of him being made alive, his exalted nature, is the spirit in which he goes down and preaches. Um, The most common explanation that I I hear from this, or read on this, is that um, this is something that Jesus does after he is made alive, but before he appears as resurrected. And that's why I pointed out that this is not the word for resurrection here. Um, and I don't, I don't know how to explain that. In that time that time frame, Jesus is made alive. But in the spirit, but that we noted that that's not just like in his spiritual, like his body's in the grave. But before he appears, no one... See, and this is useful for us. How does the resurrection uh, appear on Easter morning? Who sees him rise from the dead? No one... Witnesses him rise from the dead. Uh, they witness him alive. Um, so he rises from the dead. He is made alive. He is victorious over death. He has conquered death. And so where does he go? He goes. He goes to hell. To do what? He has conquered death. Why does he go to hell then? So he's. So this is also why we're excluding the idea of suffering because he suffered once for all. Right? He's done the suffering. He's not going to hell to suffer some more. He has conquered death and the devil. And, and so he goes and he's going to proclaim um, to these spirits. What is he going to proclaim to them? Um, really, it's the same thing that was proclaimed to them um, in, in the, in, in the, from Noah, um, which is his proclaiming. That's one of the theories that people have. What they say is, one of the ideas is that instead of him actually going down to hell during that period before he, rises, before he shows himself <coughs> resurrected, what it's saying is that it's the spirit of Christ, it's the spirit of the risen Christ in the Old Testament that's preaching to the people of Noah, Noah's day. And that, that would be true in a sense to say that what the people of Noah's day, what did they hear? When Noah was preaching to them, was not that the spirit of Christ preaching to them? the the, the pre-incarnate Christ um, through the Holy Spirit even then was, yes, but I don't think that's what this is um, referring to, uh, that he went down uh, and proclaimed to them. And the the message is the same, you know, uh, in the Old Testament, what would Noah have preached to them? Repent or be destroyed, right? And did they repent? No. What happened to them? They were destroyed, right, by the flood. Um, and and so, but here now, as the victor proclaims victory and and their damnation, it's it's not a it's not a fun message that Jesus has to. Uh, but it but at the same time, um, to proclaim to the spirits in prison. There's another verse, and I should I should have looked it up, um, where Paul talks about. Um, triumphing, uh, he uh, triumphing over them by the cross. Um, it's 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 usually mentioned when we start talking about the descent into hell because it mentions Jesus triumphing over the over um, death by his cross. Um, uh, the image I always have of Jesus' victory over death in the grave is in that painting. It's out in the in the library area, though, on the on the wall there. We've we've had it on an Easter ordo. It's got. Christ, you know, Christ is on the cross in the center, but off on the, on our left, uh, you have the same, you have the risen Christ now, holes in his hands and his feet, with a staff in his hand, and under, behind the cross, you've got these two characters, you've got this skeleton, and then you've got this monster that are getting chased, or that are chasing a a man, right? It's death and the devil, who, who just aggravate, who just, they're, they're they're, they're, they're chasing man. They do that. Death and the devil, they're on our tail. They're our enemies. We'll hear about that uh, Jesus in the, today. Um, it, the devil tempting Jesus, that's just what he does, right? He's always after us. And death is after us too. Uh, grim death pursues me all the way. He'll sing during communion. Grim death pursues me all the way. So in the background, you've got man being chased by the, the skeleton and this, uh, this monster. But on the left, on the bottom left, you have the risen Christ standing and under his feet. Under one foot, he's got the monster. And under the other foot, he's got the skeleton. Um, And and he's got this staff in his hand. He's victorious. He's risen, but he's got holes in his hands. And he's about to just puncture the head of the monster. He's got them under his feet. He has conquered. And this is is what he has to proclaim. Uh, Not good news to those who disobeyed. It's not good news. Um, to us, though, not so bad. <laughs> you know. And, and this would then serve as a warning for us. So you now think in the context of Peter writing this epistle. Remember, he's writing to Christians in an increasingly hostile world. Noah lived in a kind of world like that, too. In fact, and I think that's why he mentions Noah. Um, t- t- terrible times, you know, like you know, God looked and the thoughts of their hearts were only evil all the time, and and you got eight people, that's it. Your church had dwindled down. One time it was a lot, and now it's just eight people. And you're hunkered down in the ark and everyone else is... Um, But they won't listen. Uh, The risen Christ has a message for them. (laughs) Um, And, you know, and we could... Noah probably, you know, he preached for 120 years while he's building the ark. And they refused. Um, but, but our our Christ, he suffered too. Kind of like you're gonna be suffering, right? And but he does that for you, so that he might bring us to God, so that we might be brought safe into this ark and, and kept secure. They get a message, they're gonna have a message of their own. Um, they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which... And that, it almost seems like a sideline. It seems like, like Peter's just kind of like distracted. Like, oh, and by the way, I'm going to mention how many people were in the ark. Not really an important detail, but he, he mentions it. Um, eight people, eight persons, um, maybe in contrast to the, to the many, the multitude. Um... They were brought safely through water. It's a fascinating word there. Um, to, to, to be brought, it's to be saved through, through. He has the word through in both the verb and then the preposition. So it's saved through, through water. Um, how, we wouldn't have thought of that. I wouldn't have thought of that, of thinking of the water of saving Noah. I think it more of destroying everything else. But it does in the sense that it, it's the water. What is it that floats the boat? What is it that makes the ark float? It's the water. It's the water, the pressure that holds the boat up, right? Um, and, but also then they're saved through water in the sense that they, they get through the flood. They, they aren't under it. <laughs> um, they get, they, they come through. Um, but, it's, but, but he mentions that. It's through water. Um, so so in, the, you know, in the Old Testament, we read, we read the account of the flood, and the account of the flood primarily is a, it, you know, what's the, <laughs> um, the, ma- the main thrust of the story of the flood um, is God's judgment on sin, right? They, sometimes we try to soften it, you know, and they'll do that. You know, you put like the, um, some, like, oftentimes it's like a nursery <clears throat> theme for little children. You know, you've got the animals, that cute animals, and the giraffes, and the, you know. Um, it's not really the main point of the, it's the story of the flooded section, the destruction of the wicked world. Um, um, but it is that same water that saves and that he would um, brought safely through water. And then, well, yeah, Then let's, we'll ask them. baptism. Baptism, and he brings up baptism. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. So we need to ask, what, what is it, or how is it, that the waters of the flood correspond to baptism? in the ark Noah and his family were saved through water right and so now we've got water in baptism and he says that baptism corresponds to this Um, to what to the to water water that does what water that saves right and then he's going to make it explicitly clear um, that that's what he's saying Uh, so waters of baptism correspond because we're brought safely through water Um, I've got the in the next question, Is this evaluate. Um, some people will say this, partly because of, or I don't know if it's because of this verse, um, or some translations. Like, you see the NIV, and if you have the NIV in front of you, you'll see this. They translate it differently. Um, verse 21, And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you Also, It still has the, the grammar of the verse, but um, they throw in the word symbolizes, and, and that's why I think in part, some who do not see the, the efficacy of baptism <clears throat> of baptism doing anything will see, ah, see, symbolizes, it says symbolizes, baptism symbolizes, right? They, they get the, the mixed around, but so they say baptism is a, see, see there? Baptism is a symbol that reminds you of how your sins are washed away. See, like the flood washed away ickiness from the world. So your baptism symbolizes how your sins were washed away. Is, is that what Peter's saying here? So, in this, if, even if you use this translation, the water symbolizes baptism. Does this say that baptism symbolizes washing of away of sins? That baptism is a symbol of this? It's not what it says. It's flipped around. It's the water. What water? The flood water symbolizes baptism. So what's the real thing and what's the symbol in that scenario? The, the the symbol is the flood water. Of course, the flood water was real, so it's not just a symbol. But if it's it's the flood water that is a picture of something greater and realer. <laughs> um, the real thing is the baptism, and the water of the ba- of the flood is a, a the, the word it uses in Greek is a type. It's uh, an imprint of something that is to come, right? And so it's showing that God God works this way. He saves through water. He can use things, um, and he acts consistently, God does. But the main part of the sentence still is, this water symbolizes baptism, and what's the, and that, that now saves you. What's the, what now saves you? Baptism now saves you. That's the main, so, this is very, it's elementary, but uh, very important very helpful for us to understand just how clear this is. So what's the main part of the sentence? What's the, the basic sentence? They've got a lot of extra words. Um, what's the main part of the sentence? What's the subject of the sentence? The subject of the sentence is baptism. Ah. <clears throat> really helpful. In, in Greek, we can't tell it as well in English because we move words around and we can't, you know, what tell what the subject is all the time. In Greek, it's really easy because they put it in a certain case that has to be the subject. It can't be anything but the subject. And then you have the verb. The verb is? Saves. And then the direct object. You you, you did diagramming sentences in school. You you let's say, with a smile, like, I remember that fondly. (laughs) Baptism (laughs) saves the direct object. What does it save? That's the main site. That's the sentence. Then everything else is kind of, you know, baptism which corresponds to this now is an adverb, you know, to tell you when, and all these other things. But that's the sentence. What saves you, baptism? Of course. What's behind baptism? It's the Word of God. It's without the Word of God, it's not a baptism, but with the word of God, it is a baptism. Uh, it is a life-giving water, right? Rich in grace. Um, and this the same thing. Um, this so many of the Christmas Day, the the epistle text. We, I preached on, The main sentence the, it's God saved you. That's the main sentence. And brush it all away. Um, when the goodness and kindness of love are God. When the kindness God our Savior appeared. He saved us. As God saved us. Not through works. It says, but then it says, He saved you by washing. By baptism. Um, so baptism saves you. So those who would who would skip over this passage, um, when I was confirmed, for confirmation, I got an NIV study Bible, um, and that one not, wasn't the, like the Lutheran or the Concordia self-study Bible, which was a revision of that NIV study Bible. And the note on this verse, you know, where the text says, baptism now saves you. The, the note says something like, not that baptism actually saves, but, and it gives some other kind of other explanation for why it's just a symbol of, and, you know, a faith. Very helpful for us. Um, that baptism does something. That it is exactly, and the the, the New Testament is super consistent on this. Um, Baptism saves you. But how? What does it do? Um, What does it mean that baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience? What does... um, Yeah, we What is an appeal to God? So it's not a removal of dirt from the body. Okay, so not what normal water does, right? Just water is useful for washing dirt from the body, but that's not what it's doing. So he's explaining what this means that baptism saves. It's not removing dirt from the body, but what is it? An appeal to God for a good conscience. Um, This word, this word appeal, um, the NIV uses the word pledge, it's, it seems to be, it's the only time this. I think that this word is used in the New Testament, which makes it a little bit tricky for us. You know, so often we can look at other passages and see how, exactly how it's used everywhere else, I think. But it's like, it seems to be like a legal, technical term. So kind of like, it's like the the uh, like stipulations of an agreement, um, terms of a contract, um, it's the seal, it's the the thing that ratifies something official. That seems to be the sense of what this is. Before God, so it, it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. A good conscience is what? It would be opposed to a bad conscience. And a bad conscience, you could have a couple ways of having a bad conscience. You could have a conscience that doesn't, that, that doesn't, um, that's been shut down and, and calloused. You could, that would be a bad conscience um, that you know, no longer alerts you when, when something's wrong, right? It'd be like someone with no feeling in your hands and you put your hand on a stove. That'd be not good, right? Um, it's good to have the indicator that something's wrong, right? Or when, when the, you know, the lights on your dash no longer come on anymore because the bulbs are burnt out. <laughs> you might like that, but that's not so good to not know when there's a problem. Or if, you know, like you, 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 put, you, put, you put, put tape over the light <laughs> so that you don't have to see it or something like that. <laughs> um, or a bad conscience could be uh, an overactive conscience, right? It's a misinformed conscience that tells you something's wrong that isn't wrong. That could be a bad conscience too. But what do you suppose he's... To deliver a good conscience versus a bad conscience. A bad conscience also could be it's not technically a bad conscience because it's the conscience doing what the conscience is supposed to do. What is the conscience supposed to do? To alert you when something's wrong. But what, how does that make you feel? Bad, <laughs> right? And so a bad conscience before God is one that is not a clear conscience before God. It is a burdened conscience, right? A, um, a, a guilty conscience. And that's the opposite of what he so baptism, what does it do? It seals your good conscience before God. You could say it delivers to you a good conscience. It makes your conscience clean. How? Not by, not by putting sticking tape over the dash, over the light. How does it do it? It does it by the blood of Jesus. That's the only proper way to deal with a bad conscience, a guilty conscience, is the forgiveness of sins in Christ. It's the blood of Jesus. To be applied to it, how is the blood of Jesus applied to it? Well, baptism does such a thing, right? Because, well, he explains. As a baptism, uh, appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, so it, we're, that, that might puzzle us a little bit. How is it that the, what is the resurrection of Jesus Christ? How does that deliver the good conscience? as a result of baptism. Um, I think a couple other passages might help us in this. Uh, Where Paul also talked about baptism and resurrection. Uh, So let's, we could, Romans 6 is one of them. This is one that the catechism quotes. Let me make this bigger for you. And move the Greek over. Do you not know, Romans 6 verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So, again, Paul, when he talks about baptism, it, it, and it is, you're baptized into his death, he makes it sound like this is actually doing something to you. And what is it that it's doing to you? It's like being baptized into his death. It, it's like you're taking, like, you've got a, a vat of Jesus' death <laughs> for sin, and he plunges you into it. You, and so the. Jesus dying is is applied, is is applied to you. Baptized into his death. Buried with him by baptism into death. In order that just, and so that, will the result of that, of being baptized to his death, therefore, uh, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection. And it's kind of making that the bigger, the stronger case is in the, being united with him in his resurrection. If we've been united with him in his death, then absolutely, absolutely will be raised, we'll be united with him in his resurrection. Um, that baptism connects us to Jesus in his death and his resurrection. Um, Paul, in writing to the Colossians, I think is maybe even clearer. Maybe this is even stronger. Um, he's talking about circumcision um he talks about the circumcision. He, he, is, you've received the circumcision made without hands. And he's, um, well, that's what, it in him also, you were circumcised. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. How? How were you, how, because, you know, circumcision was done when a you know, baby was eight days old. And he says, you were circumcised, but not with a, not that circumcision. Maybe you were, maybe you weren't. But what I'm talking about is a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the flat body of the flesh, by the circumcision of, your, of Christ. But how? how? How did that happen to you? By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism. In which you were also raised with him through faith. In baptism, you were raised with him. Okay? So. Baptism saves you. As an appeal to God for a good conscience, your baptism stands as this seal, this certification that your conscience is clear. How? Um, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because you stand, when you stand before God, as though you, that you've died to sin and now raised to life through his resurrection. And so then, also then, his resurrection is this... this Certainty-giving thing for the conscience. As surely as Christ is raised from the dead, I who have been baptized into His death and resurrection stand before God alive in Christ. Then you, you know, you stand stand before God and, and have have nothing on me, um, a, a clean conscience. And with seven minutes to spare, um, I, didn't, I don't have a question on, the, on this last verse. But then, it, you know, just going on to Jesus' exaltation, his ascension, who has gone into heaven at the right hand of God with angels um, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I just—it's so delightful for me to, to see just how, again, how clearly. Uh, the, 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 both we have this teaching you know, you've know. you got the teaching of the descent into hell which it, it's, it, it's kind of like Luther, it's a little bit puzzling from the verse itself, like what is he talking about and we piece it together and we, I think we have a comforting thing that comes out of it we say, I don't, know, I don't know why Peter felt like he needed to mention it other than perhaps to give consolation like he's doing this whole letter to give consolation to Christians we're living in a world that seems like it's getting harder and worse. Uh, Feeling alone. Um, And and here he he pumps them full of of confidence and security um, drawn from Jesus himself and his suffering, his death for you, his resurrection, and then your attachment to all of that, your identity in him, um, you know what? You know we would never want to be so callous um, towards the unbelieving world. That it wouldn't hurt us a little bit. You know, um, I, I think about that a lot. The just, just, just you know, like so in Noah's day, and you know, Noah's preaching to them, warning them for for. Hot, decades and decades, right? Um, gotta be frustrating. But there's, at the same time, there's this sort of... I'm not sure what it is. It, 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 it's not a coldness towards that, but a, a certain sense of, well, but that's right. It, it, it's right that they would be damned. Um, and not in, in a vindictive way from us, you know, Like well, they're gonna get it, Um, uh, but it's, It's what's that? It's an acceptance. Yeah, and it's kind of like a. It's like it's gonna be okay, and it'll be right. You know, I've said this before. Like, no one's gonna get to heaven and think that Jesus made a mistake and he missed someone. We won't, we won't have that sense. I think that it's I, I don't I don't think that we'll necessarily be unaware that not everyone is there. But we won't mourn it. Because there will be no mourning. Oh, um, how do you get there? You know, here we'll mourn, I think, still. We'll mourn the loss. We'll mourn disobedience and unbelief. We'll mourn apostasy. Um But at the same time, like, the scriptures does sort of teach us to have a a little bit of long-term view and say, it will be okay. There's no one going to be in hell that's going to, like, well, they got a bad deal. You know, like all the people in jail are like, well, (laughs) the the cops did it to me. You know, like we could blame someone else. um, Or that they, they... we're not entirely, perfectly deserving of that, um, and so it's a, a, I mean, a kind of a resignation, kind of, in a, it, but it, but I think in the end it will be a joyful acceptance um, that Jesus could, and that that Jesus would. He's he's proclaimed, and that same message that that gives us us confidence um, yeah, is a warning to those to those who would. Uh, be on that edge of of disbelief, um, but the, the main thing, I guess, I think the whole letter gives, uh, is to give consolation and encouragement um, to those living in this crazy world. We are making progress. Uh, shall we close with uh, "On my heart and print your image"?